Let us begin with prayer. Holy Spirit, breathe life into these human words so that they truly testify to the reality of God and God's activity in our midst. In your name we pray. Amen. Amen. We've arrived at week five of our six-week series on the Apostles' Creed. Today's sentence is perhaps the most familiar. We sing the most songs about this particular statement. I believe in the forgiveness of sins. If asked, which statement of the Apostles' Creed do you understand most? Some of you might respond, this one. But I want to suggest that the forgiveness of sins is just as much of a mystery as the Trinity. So in order to snap us out of our familiarity with the concept of forgiveness, I need to tell you a story. It was a personal story I heard just this past Friday after I had lunch with Dan when attending a conference called the Global Leadership Summit. The, the conference takes place at Willow Creek in Chicago, but it's live, there's a live feed satellite sites all throughout the country and the world, really. And due to some circumstances that I can only call providence, I, I was able to, to listen to this story, and so I think God wants me to, to tell it to you all. And it's longer, it's a longer story than I've ever told from the pulpit before. It'll take up about half of our sermon this morning, but I do believe that this is one of the, the primary ways God wants to teach us about the forgiveness of sins this morning. So here it is. Before I begin, does anyone know where the clicker is? Anyone know where the clicker is? This one? This one? Sorry. <laughs> All right. Got it. All right. This will help us. The story begins on April 7th, 1994. Do you recall what you were doing on that day? Probably not. It was just an ordinary day. We woke up, caught the bus to school, or drove to work. We carried out our business, came home, had dinner, went to bed. April 7th, 1994, just an ordinary day for most of us. But not for Immaculate Illabajiza. Try to say that name ten times fast. <laughs> Immaculate Illabajiza. This young woman had just returned home from college. She was on Easter break, and she arrived home, and she was warmly welcomed by strong, loving Christian parents. Her grandparents were there too. Even her three brothers were glad to see her home. I'm sure they all went to church together on Easter Sunday, that great celebration of Christ's victory over death. So far, her Easter break was a joyous one. Then on April 7th, four days after Easter, one of her brothers rushed to her room and said, the president of our country has just been killed. His plane was shot down. Immaculate's first thought was this, they're going to kill us. She went outside, turned on the radio. The government of her country, Rwanda, had just shut down every activity. Minutes later, she tuned in to BBC Radio. 18 families had already been killed, and not just the men, Mom, dad, children, 
and infants. Things had been escalating in Rwanda for quite some time, but nothing like this had ever happened before. Nothing like this was expected. Jesus' words preceding his crucifixion fit the occasion well. I will not say much more to you, for the prince of the world is coming. The backstory is that two political parties had been wrestling for power in Rwanda for quite some time. These two parties were tied to tribal identities, the Hutus and the Tutsis. Both parties leveraged the basic emotions of fear and anger to inspire allegiance to their respective party. It worked, but it also inspired hatred. When hatred is given the occasion, it becomes violent. So in 1994, the Hutus were in power. Their president had just been killed, presumably by a Tutsi. And the very next day, as Immaculate tells us, an official government announcement on the radio aired out to all the peoples of Rwanda. They urged all Hutus, military and civilian alike, to kill every Tutsi neighbor they could. They added, do not forget the children, a child of a snake is a snake too. Immaculee was one of those children. Within days, her fear became reality. The Hutu-backed military, along with ordinary angry neighbors, went from house to house and village to village. And you can imagine what they did. There were no exceptions. There were no rules. There was no rest. Ninety-three days consecutively of killing. One million Tutsis were killed. In 93 days. And Immaculee was a Tutsi. She was also the young woman, the only young woman in her family. Everyone knew that death was knocking on the door. In fact, her d- dad had gathered everyone, and just to show you the kind of man he was, he, he said to them, uh, people, we should consider this an occasion for repentance. We know that we're going to die, so we can repent now, and soon we will be together in heaven. But her brothers and her father wanted to protect Immaculate. So they sent her to a friend's house, a friend from the other tribe, a Hutu. He was a Protestant pastor. They were Catholics. And at this point in the story, Immaculate interrupts and, and she clarifies to everyone listening. She says, not all Hutus were bad. Many were good, like this man, and they did not kill. But the government had carefully planned this genocide. They incited the people to hatred and violence. So Immaculate left her family out of obedience. She didn't want to go. She wanted to die with them and be with them in heaven. But she left out of obedience. And when she arrived, the the Hutu pastor led her to a hidden three-by-four bathroom in the house. Hours later, another young woman enters the tight quarters with her. And later another, and then another, until eventually seven women piled together in this dark three-by-four room, hiding for their lives. Now, while, while murder raged outside the walls, Immaculate held on to the hope that God would protect her. 
That is, until she heard from the radio this news, the government had issued a full military search of every Hutu house. She thought to herself, that's it. It's over. I'm going to die. So the day came when the search team arrived. She heard their steps. And all she felt was pure terror. It felt like a thousand needles, she said, as she imagined what might happen. At that moment, she describes hearing two voices. We've heard these voices as well. One voice said, open the door, end the torture, why wait? Another voice said, don't open the door, ask God to help you. Remember who God is, remember God is almighty, and you still have every reason to believe in him. So she prayed, God, if you were there, if you can hear me, do not let the killers open the door to this bathroom today. After this, she fainted. For several hours, she was unconscious. And what happened next was told to her by the pastor. After she fainted, what happened was that that 300 people had circled the house. They searched every room. They looked into every crevice and corner, even through the ceiling. They opened every suitcase in case a baby could have been hidden there. And then they came right to the door of the bathroom where seven women were piled in. That's when the unthinkable happened. The ringleader of the search said to the pastor, you know what? You're a good man. You would never hide these people. You're one of us. And then he left. And when Immaculate awoke, she heard the story, and the first thing she, th- she thought wasn't, I'm not going to die, but the first thing she thought was, oh my God, God is real. God heard me in the bathroom. She was not thinking about how she hadn't been killed. She was stunned by the fact that God was real, that God heard her in the bathroom. And from that moment on, she said, I decided, God, I will believe in you. I don't understand what has happened. I don't understand so many things about you, but I will believe in you. You are real. For the next three months, all she did was pray. What else could she do in this three-by-four room? She prayed the Lord's Prayer often, sometimes 200 times a day, But when she got to the part about forgiveness, this ties into our sermon series, when she got to the part about forgiveness, she could not say the words. She just skipped over that part of the prayer every time. Forgive us our debts, skip, and lead us not into temptation. She could not pray the words, as we forgive our debtors. She was too angry. As she described it, she was too full of hate toward those outside who are killing her people. And who in this room would blame her? As the days went on, she kept praying. She also kept nursing her anger. It was making her miserable. The resentment and hatred boiled within her, sometimes to the point of rage. She says, my anger was my way of being a hero, so I kept it even though it was so painful. My anger was my way of being a hero, so I kept it, 
even though it was so painful. One day, in the bathroom, she was reading the Gospels. And she kept encountering the reality of forgiveness. As soon as she glossed over one instance, not paying it much attention, another one would punch her in the gut. Peter came to Jesus and said, Lord, how many times should I forgive my brother and sister? Seven times? Jesus answered, not seven times, 77 times. Jesus teaches, you've heard that it was said, love your neighbor, hate your enemy. But I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. Love my enemies? No, no, you don't know my enemies. You don't know how bad they are. They are ruining my life. They're killing my family. And finally, Immaculate arrived at Luke 23 in the bathroom. She came across the scene where Jesus is crucified. And he's looking down from the cross and he prays, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they are doing. At this, she wept. She reflects on this experience with these words. After hearing this, I understood for the first time in my life the meaning of surrender. Friends, this is the surrender of forgiveness. Jesus surrendered to the Father, and it was the surrender of forgiveness. So Immaculate prayed, God, if you know how to forgive, I beg you, help me to forgive. I cannot forgive. But if you know how, I beg you to help. Maybe that needs to be your prayer this morning. Immaculate then describes how God changed her heart. She found herself capable of praying the entire Lord's Prayer. She, she, she reflects on it and she says, she, she, she sensed God telling her, Hey, you know that the Lord's Prayer wasn't man-made, don't you? If I were you, I would try not to edit Jesus' prayer. So she prayed for her enemies. And as she did so, she experienced the surrender of forgiveness. Forgiveness means letting go. Letting go of anger, of judgment. Deciding not to nurse the anger. Not to justify it, but to let it go. To surrender. As she surrendered to the Father, Anger and hatred surrendered to her, and they just got up and walked right out of her heart. To forgive is to surrender. And when she finally understood the meaning of surrender, she describes how the bitterness of anger got up, walked right out of her heart. It went away. And the joy, the joy of forgiveness entered in. Many people ask her, but how do you forgive someone who has killed your mom and dad? You see, after 93 days in the bathroom, it was finally safe for her to come out. And she had hoped by a slim chance that, that, that someone, that one of her, her family members would, would have survived. Or her brother survived, one of her brothers. But everyone else she loved and left behind was killed. Mom, dad, two brothers, grandma, grandpa, several neighbors, friends. How do you forgive the people who knowingly did this. Immaculate admits 
that when she discovered that all but one brother had died, she wanted to die too. But as she describes it, in that moment, the giant hand of God was in my chest. Don't die. Don't be crushed. The journey of your loved ones is no longer here. It's in heaven. But your journey is still here, and you don't know how much longer it will be. So after her first conversion to the way of surrender, she soon recognized that she would have to make, a, make surrender a daily habit of mind. Often she'd, prayed something, she'd pray something like this. Here you go, Father. It's up to you. Justice is up to you. Whatever you want to do, Father. But me, let me pray for them. At this, she interrupts her story once more and looks up at us, the listeners. She smiles brightly. She says, there's so much freedom in letting go. So much joy. I am happy now. I really am. Truly happy. Immaculate's daily habit of surrender to the Father eventually led her to visit in prison one of the men who had killed her family. She walked in to the area to meet him. She looked him in the eyes and she felt love. She said to him with a sincere heart, I forgive you. The man's face swelled and streamed with tears. This was not the encounter he was expecting. He had no category for the forgiveness of God. Near the end of her story, Immaculate just gives us a few parting words, which I gladly pass on to you, Heartland Community Church. She told us, if you are going through anything, remember, there is always hope. Hold on to God. Let nothing scare you or cause you fear. The genocide was a terrible experience, but the lessons I learned, I learned forgiveness, but more importantly, the joy of forgiveness. And I learned that forgiveness is possible in every situation. And I want you to know without a shadow of a doubt, she continued, God is real. Whatever our Lord tells us, he's right. The genocide happened because we failed to listen to him. We failed to love one another. So love. You can't change other people, but you can change yourself. You can act in love. So however long your life is, it is a gift, and it's up to you to choose how you use it, to love or to hate. Take every day with excitement. Go out and do something beautiful. We don't know how long it will be, but we can use what we have. We can love. So we return to ourselves and to the Word of God. Before we turn to the Word, we ask, do you know the freedom of letting go, the pleasure of surrender, the joy of of forgiveness. Let me ask, who do you need to forgive? With whom is your relationship not right? Who, when their name comes to mind, stirs up the emotion of, of anger, or frustration? Who are you avoiding because they hurt you or because you hurt them? Who do you need to forgive? Is it your neighbor? 
Is it yourself? Immaculate story is really God's story. It's the story of God the Spirit working redemption into real human lives. It's God's way of getting a hold of our attention and shouting, forgiveness is possible in every situation, everyone. The joy of surrender lies before you and me. So we, tra- so we transition from this incredible story. You can read more about it. She writes a book called Left to Tell, Left to Tell. We transition from this story to the story of Scripture. But I want these questions to stay in our minds. Do you know the surrender of forgiveness? And who do you need to forgive? Romans 5, we're going to read verse 1 through 10. Hear the word of the Lord. Therefore, since we have been made righteous through faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. We have access by faith into this grace in which we stand through him. And we boast in the hope of God's glory. But not only that, we even take pride in our problems. Because we know that trouble produces endurance. Endurance produces character. And character produces hope. This hope doesn't put us to shame. Because the love of God has been poured out into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. While we were still weak at the right moment, Christ died for ungodly people. It is often, it isn't often that someone will die for a righteous person, though maybe someone might dare to die for a good person. But God shows his love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. So now that we have been made righteous by his blood, we can be even more certain that we will be saved from God's wrath through him. If we were reconciled to God through the death of his son, while we were still enemies, now that we have been reconciled, how much more certain is it that we will be saved by his life? And not only that, we even take pride in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, the one through whom we now have a restored relationship with God. This is the word of the Lord. At the heart of God's invitation, rather command, to forgive others is the reality that God has forgiven us. The basis on which we are called to forgive is not located in the actions of the one who wronged us, but the basis on which we forgive is that God has forgiven us. God the Son surrenders his life to us swallowing the pain of our sin into himself. And this way, God's anger, God's wrath is surrendered. In Christ, God is reconciling the world to himself. And reconciliation begins with forgiveness. As Paul says, God shows his love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Therefore, The basis on which we are called to forgive is not located in the actions of the one who wronged us, but in God's actions toward us. We do not forgive because the one who wronged us said they were sorry. We do not forgive because the sinner repented and changed their ways. We do not forgive because justice has finally been served. 
We forgive because God forgave us. Forgive one another as God in Christ forgave you. We will never learn to forgive by rehashing what happened. We will never learn to forgive by trying to see the bright side of things and sweeping it under the rug. We will never learn to forgive by searching for justice. We learn to forgive in the same way that Immaculee learned to forgive. We must see the man upon the cross. We must look up and behold God the Son crucified. And then we must look within and see and behold a sinner. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Therefore, while others are still sinning against us, we die for them. Forgiveness is a kind of death, you see. The hurt must go somewhere. The pain is real. When we nurse anger and harbor resentment and hold on to bitterness, it's our way of dealing with the pain. As Immaculate so keenly understood, my anger was my way of being a hero, so I kept it even though it was painful. From her statement, we perceive something remarkable about anger and forgiveness. Even though anger remains painful to us, most of us would rather stick with it than forgive. Why is this? I think it's because when we keep the pain alive through anger, we feel a sense of power, a sense of control, a sense of victory. And one thing we hate more than pain is powerlessness. As long as I have my anger, we think, I can decide how to leverage it. I can be passive-aggressive. I can give her the stonewall treatment. I can bring it up later in an argument to ensure I win. So even though anger remains painful to the one harboring it, it also comes with a sense of, of power. To forgive is to die to that power. That's why it's so hard. None of us like to die. To forgive is to lay down our weapons in such a way that I no longer have the ability to use them to win an argument. I'm not going to bring it up. To forgive is to let go of a sense of control. If I truly forgive, I am no longer able to control someone else's behavior by, my, by using that thing against them. Neither am I able to justify my own negative attitude toward them. To forgive is to give up, to give up on the whole project of getting even. To forgive is to lose, and we don't like to lose. We must not only refuse to stir up the anger any longer, we must decide to swallow it once and for all. We do this by surrendering it to God. As Immaculate said, here you go, Father. It's up to you. Justice is up to you, whatever you want to do, Father. But me, let me pray for them. And here's the mystery. In losing, we win. In dying, we rise. Remember how I said at the beginning that I believe this statement of the creed, the forgiveness of sins, is one of the greatest mysteries of our faith, right up there with the Trinity. Here's the mystery. When we swallow the pain through forgiveness 
instead of stirring up the pain through anger, it loses its grip on us. When we surrender the anger, resentment, contempt, and hatred, it feels like a death at first. But on the third day, by the power of God, we are resurrected into people of unspeakable peace and joy and hope, and the pain can no longer touch us. Instead, the love of God pervades us, like the love Immaculate felt walking into that prison cell to address the man who killed her family. This is the mystery of the forgiveness of sins. Forgive one another as God and Christ forgave you. What happens when we say no to the task of forgiveness is that we are in effect saying no to the life of God. God's order of things requires forgiveness. Through the surrender of the Son, we are restored to the Father. The Son swallowed the pain of our sin so that we might share in the pleasure of his life. And through the Son, we share also in the life of the Father and the Spirit. This is now our life, divine communion, magical intimacy, mutual surrender and embrace. This is our life because of God's work of forgiveness. This is why Paul says we take pride in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, the one through whom we now have a restored relationship with God. But none of this happens without forgiveness, you see. Forgiveness is the first step toward restored relationship. Of course, it's not the only step. Sometimes the relationship must be cut off, at least for a time, because it's harmful and destructive. And yes, we must seek justice and hold people accountable. But that doesn't excuse us from the task of forgiveness. God's order of things requires forgiveness. So if you're still having troubles forgiving, it's quite possible that you also have troubles knowing what it means that you are forgiven by God and Christ. Jesus said, if you don't forgive others, neither will your Father forgive your sins. We don't have time to go into all of what this means. It has something to do with the way things are ordered in the kingdom of God. Forgiveness is a requirement in God's order of things because God is reconciling the world to himself and people can't experience reconciliation unless there is first forgiveness. When Jesus said this, what I think he knew, which often slips past our minds, is this. A heart that is not ready to forgive has not reckoned with how much he stands in need of forgiveness. A heart that refuses to let go, to surrender the bitterness, to hold on to the card you owe me, has not reckoned with the fact of how much he owes God and others. Therefore, such a one counts God's forgiveness as a nice thing, but as a rather minor renovation. Thank you, God, for tinkering around in the guest bathroom. You've made things look a lot better in there. The truth, however, between God and man is that on our side, we owe God everything. And on God's side, God owes us nothing. Our hearts are prone to serving self. God's heart beats with love for others. Therefore, we don't just need a God to do some tinkering around in a side room in our soul. 
for the entire castle of our soul has crumbled down to the foundations. God must do us more than a favor, a nice thing, a minor renovation of the soul. God must clean out and clean up everything. God must rebuild our souls from ground zero, for the castle has fallen. Furthermore, we can't be the ones heading up this project. It's our shoddy work that got us into this problem in the first place. Only God can be in charge of reconstructing our souls. Only God can rebuild what's fallen. We must say with Immaculate, I cannot forgive. But you can. You must help me. And when we pray this with sincerity, God does it. God begins by the surrender of forgiveness. In the person of Christ, God allows himself to feel the hurt toward him that our harmful actions have caused. Thus, Christ swallows the pain into his own flesh. And this way, Christ forgives us. And forgiveness is death. But here's the mystery. In losing, Christ wins. In dying, Christ rises. So now we rejoice with Paul about the joy of forgiveness. We have access by faith into this grace in which we now stand. We boast in the hope of God's glory. Friends, this is what we mean when we say, I believe in the forgiveness of sins. It is to believe in the surrender of God, which enables the surrender of ourselves, letting go of everything, falling down as beggars into the gracious arms of God. Let us pray. Lord, if you know how to forgive, and we believe you do, we beg you, help us to forgive. For some of us, we cannot forgive. We cannot forgive others. We cannot forgive ourselves. We cannot forgive God for what we believe you owe us. We cannot do it. We don't know how. But you know how. So we throw ourselves wholly at your feet as beggars right now. In the stillness of this room, we beg you, Lord, to renovate completely our souls and start with the forgiveness of sins. We look up at your cross. We hear those unprecedented words. Father, forgive them, for they don't know what they're doing. In Jesus' name, amen.